Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, let's talk about dead Republicans. Have you heard about the radical Republicans? They were the faction that basically took over Congress after the Civil War. I'll get to that in just a second. But what I want to lay out, the headline on my piece over Hartman Report, Radical Republicans Reach Out from the Grave. The Congress must expel some members and punish the states. How do you do this? It's the 14th Amendment. Thaddeus Stevens and uh, Charles Sumner. Thaddeus Stevens in the House, Charles Sumner in the Senate. Stevens had been a Massachusetts lawyer before he came to the House of Representatives. He represented Massachusetts in the U.S. House back in in the 1860s. And he, when he was a lawyer in Massachusetts before this, part of his practice was helping people who had escaped, black people who had escaped from the South, get legal paperwork in Massachusetts certifying that they were now free citizens of Massachusetts. This is what he did for a living, or or it's what he did on the side, actually. It wasn't paid work, but it was a big part of his life. And he went into Congress, and then Charles Sumner from South Carolina, no, I'm sorry, he was not from, Charles Sumner was not from South Carolina. He was beaten up by a guy from South Carolina. Charles Sumner was beaten up by uh, Preston Brooks in 1856, four years before the Civil War, because he was opposing slavery in the Senate. So you had the radical Republican Sumner in the Senate, the radical Republican Stevens in the House, and they championed and passed these three pieces of legislation, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. The 13th Amendment ended slavery except for people who are convicted of a crime. Slavery is still legal in the United States, which is why our prisons operate the way they do. But the 13th Amendment ended slavery for everything other than a crime. The 15th Amendment granted voting rights to former slaves. And the 14th Amendment, which is the key one here, has a whole bunch of provisions. It's got five articles. Article 1 establishes birthright citizenship, which was specifically intended to establish in a way that could not be questioned the citizenship of formerly enslaved human beings here in the United States, thus the birthright citizenship. And secondly, it says that the number of members that a state may send to the House of Representatives is proportionate to the number of voting citizens they have. And that's a pretty big deal. It it says, the first part, this eliminates the three-fifths provision that was in the Constitution for counting black people, basically, in states. And they eliminated that with this language in the 14th Amendment, Section 2. It says, representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers. But then it goes on to say, and I'm going to, this is actually a very long piece of the second sentence of Section 2 of of Article 4 of the 14th Amendment. It's got a whole bunch of stuff in it about white men and age 21 and all that. So I'm deleting all that in my quote. So this is an abridged quote, but this is the essence of it. It says, but when the right to vote at any election is denied to citizens of the United States or in any way abridged, keep that in mind, the basis of representation therein, in other words, the number of members that a state can send to the House of Representatives, the basis of representative therein shall be reduced in proportion which the number of such citizens shall bear to the whole number of citizens in such a state. In other words, if you can demonstrate that Georgia prevented 20% of their people from voting in the last election through you know, eight-hour lines or uh, knocking them off the voter rolls or whatever, if you can demonstrate that 20% of the voters in Georgia were not allowed to vote, 
in the last election. You could reduce the size of Georgia's congressional delegation by 20%. So if they've got 10 people going to the House, and I, I frankly don't know off the top of my head, but if they had 10 people going to the House, they would lose two. So that's, our, that's the second section of the 14th Amendment. But the third section really gets juicy. And again, I'll abridge it. It says, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress who has, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. That Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So what it says, basically, is if a member of Congress engages in insurrection, or encourages it, or even provides aid and comfort to it, they may be removed from Congress by a two-thirds vote of the House and Senate. Now, the problem is, both of these provisions basically got blown up. The Article 5 of the 14th Amendment says that Congress can pass legislation to make any of this stuff happen, right? Quote, the Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. And Congress had done that in the 1860s. The 14th Amendment was passed in 1868. Congress had done that in 1869. But that was blown up in 1872 by the Amnesty Act. This was an attempt to bring the southern states back, you know, hoping that the southern states would start behaving themselves. It didn't work. But it basically ended Congress's ability to enforce the Article 2 or Section 2 and Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So Congress needs to pass a law right now and this is what I'm calling for in my piece over at HartmanReport.com. You know, we're pushing it out far and wide. And I've shared it with, you know, mem- a couple of members of Congress who, who come on this program. Congress, in my opinion, and if you know anything about this, you know, feel free to challenge me on this or, or support me. I, because this is kind of an obscure piece of constitutional law. But it sure seems to me that what Congress needs to be doing right now is passing a law that says explicitly, that any state that suppresses the vote loses members of the House of Representatives in proportion to that uh, suppression of the vote. Just clearly state it. Put them on notice, number one. That's section two of of the 14th Amendment. And then with regard to section three, we need to pass legislation, and it could be the same piece of legislation. They both have to do with the 14th Amendment. With section three, we need to pass legislation saying that any member of Congress who has engaged in seditious acts can be removed. Period. Now, they could perhaps say even with a simple majority vote, although, uh, you know, that would run into a constitutional challenge because the 14th Amendment says a, you know, a two-thirds majority. And I get that. But, hey, you know, grab the brass ring when it, when it comes by. Uh, so, bottom line... The Constitution provides Congress with the ability to police their own members with regard to sedition and to police the states with regard to voter suppression. And, you know, again, this came out of the 14th Amendment, which came out of the end of the Civil War. At that point in time, the southern states were not part of the Union. By 1868, I'm pretty sure that maybe one or two of them had, at that point, reformed their constitutions. In other words, reconstructed their constitutions so that they could rejoin the United States. But it certainly wasn't the whole bunch of them. And this was an attempt, the the 14th Amendment was a clear attempt by these radical Republicans led by Thaddeus Stevens in in large part, who uh, in 1868 uh, or 18, I forget the year he died, I think it was 68, But when he died, he stipulated in his will that he wanted to be buried in a cemetery that included black people. And so they took him to Pennsylvania and they buried him in an integrated cemetery. I don't know if there were none in Massachusetts where he was from or not, but Thaddeus Stevens is an amazing story. Back then, the Republicans were the good guys. Of course, that was 150 years ago or 160 years ago. So, you know, that dynamic has changed. Let's see here. Steve in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hello, Tom. Longtime listener. I'm wondering what specific provision in H.R. 1 will blunt 
what the Georgia legislature has recently passed, whereby the Georgia legislature has determined that they will decide who, which votes count in the state for, uh, for national elections rather than the secretary of state or county or precinct officials. Right. It's a good question. I have, I have not read H.R. 1. It's a pretty substantial and uh, daunting piece of legislation. And I've, I've looked at it. And there are, you know, a lot of parts in it where it says, you know, Article 3 of this section shall be, the, the language shall be changed to, you know, that kind of thing. So I can't tell you that, Steve, off the top of my head. I do understand, my understanding in general is that it establishes, it regularizes, essentially, elections in all the states and requires that the elections be administered by people who are not partisans. And what Georgia has done, the worst part of the Georgia Suppression Bill is very rarely discussed you know, in, the, in the national media, but the worst part of it is that it says that elected, uh, elected officials, essentially, you know, a majority of the House and Senate in the state of Georgia, can decide who the election officials are in other words, they can put their partisans in those places because they had this problem with the last election where Republicans in Georgia, including the Secretary of State, uh, who, and this legislation cuts him out of the loop altogether, Brad Raffensperger, and they had this problem in Michigan and Pennsylvania as well. Republican people who identified themselves as Republicans but were election officials refused to change the vote totals. And Trump was demanding that they do so. You know, find me X thousand, what was it, 10,000 some odd votes that he was saying. And they will be able to do that now in Georgia. And it's going to be real interesting to see what happens in the 2022 election if this law still stands. But H.R. 1, I'm almost 100% certain, would strike down that part of it anyway. Are there other parts that you were specifically concerned about, Steve? Uh, no, I, I was just wondering kind of what language would, yeah, if there was language that perhaps the representatives would know specifically could say, yes, this will, this will blunt yeah. that legislative effort by the Georgia. I think it also, again, I have to say, I think because, and thank you for the ping on this, by the way, Steve, because this is something Sean and I need to work on getting a guest on who is really informed about this. Maybe somebody from the Brennan Center or maybe a legislator, I'm not sure, to ask these questions. But the other thing that I understand is that it will eliminate eight and 10 hour lines, which has been the principal vehicle of voter suppression in the South, by requiring there be enough voting machines or voting positions in each polling place relative to the local population. And it will also make it impossible for uh, secretaries of state to simply dismiss people from the voter rolls, as Brian Kemp did when he was secretary of state in the uh, 20, what was it, 2018 election, 2016 election, when he became governor. I think it was 2018 when he went up against Stacey Abrams. Steve, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Thanks for raising a really important issue, and uh, we are on it. We'll find out. We'll, we'll get everything we can about that because this is a hot issue and it's going to become a very hot issue starting next week. I just want to highlight very quickly the revisionist history that is being peddled on Fox News and other right wing media. This is not just unique to Fox News. But here you get uh, Tucker Carlson saying, along with the word insurrection in scare quotes, right, on the screen, a mob of older people from unfashionable zip codes, in other words, people from red states, right, made it all the way to Washington, D.C., maybe by bus. They wandered freely through the Capitol like it was their building or something. Huh? Really? Like, you know, oh, yeah, we, you know, <laughs> I, 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 this is, they didn't have guns, but a lot of them had extremely dangerous ideas, says Tucker Carlson. Actually, it turns out some of them did have guns. There were enough weapons that were identified or recovered to have and, and ammunition to have killed every single member of Congress. Uh, back to Carlson. They talked about the Constitution and something called their rights. And some of them made openly seditious claims. They insisted, for example, that the last election was not entirely fair. I mean, let's just be very clear. Five people died that day, including a police officer. Two other police officers subsequently committed suicide. Over 100 officers were severely, so severely injured they required hospitalization. One lost an eye. Another lost a finger. Multiple police officers sustained brain damage, brain injuries from being beaten by these people. 
Uh, this is just amazing. And then, and then Carlson goes off on Eric Munchel. Eric Munchel is, remember zip tie guy? The guy in all the photos who's, who's got all the zip ties hanging from his belt and he's running through the floor of the House of Representatives, you know, looking for Nancy. His name is Eric Munchel. And uh, his mother is uh, Lisa El- uh, Eisenhardt. And she was there also. She went with him. So this is what Tucker Carlson had to say about zip tie guy. Neither Lisa Eisenhart nor her son, Eric Munchel, damaged either property at the Capitol or committed any violence. They just walked in what we used to refer to as the people's house. Just? Really? It's mind-boggling. Meanwhile, 10 Democrats have joined this lawsuit. Eric Swalwell, you'll recall, sued Donald Trump for inciting this riot. And uh, this is under the, uh, he's suing both Trump and Giuliani under the Ku Klux Klan Act, which prohibits two or more people from conspiring to, quote, prevent by force, intimidation, or threat any officer holder from performing their official duties, which is exactly what happened on January 6th. They stopped Congress. It's a violation of the Klan Act. And the people, the House members, the Democratic House members who are joining Eric Swalwell's lawsuit are uh, Jerry Nadler of New York, Karen Bass of California, Steve Cohen of Tennessee, Bonnie Watson Coleman of New Jersey, Veronica Escobar of Texas, Hank Johnson of Georgia, Marcy Kaptur of Ohio, Barbara Lee of California, Maxie Waters of California, and Pramila Jayapal of Washington. If, uh, if you uh, follow any of them on Twitter, uh, give them a thumbs up, a, you know, a high five. Thank you for doing that. And, uh, you know, good luck. I mean, they, people are f- starting to seriously push back. Meanwhile, we've got a televangelist. This is truly bizarre. This, I mean, this is, this, is the kind, this is the problem that comes out of a political party that has nothing to sell. The Republican Party is, has, since the 1970s, has o- exclusively been the party of rich people and billionaire, uh, billionaires and big corporations. That's it. And I think America is starting to figure this out. But when you got nothing to sell, how do you bring people in? How do you keep people close? How do you get their money? Well, you flip them out with weird conspiracy theories like, you know, uh, Republicans in Georgia stole the election for Joe Biden. Honest to God, that's, that's Donald Trump's conspiracy theory, that the Republican Secretary of State stole the election on behalf of Joe Biden. And therefore, the, the House and Senate in Georgia passed a law cutting him out of the loop for the next election. So he can't steal the next election for a Democrat. The Republican Secretary of State. But this is where this is where it just goes over the top. Remember Jim Baker? Jim and Tammy Faye back in the day with the heated doghouse and the multi-million dollar mansions. Um, he's got a TV show. And he had this guy Steve Quayle on. And they were arguing that the nasal swabs, you know, when you get tested for COVID, they stick this thing up your nose that that's a way of collecting your DNA so that they can turn Americans into a satanic army of zombies. This is what Baker said. Zombies that are on earth are a disease like any other disease that afflicts people and they become zombies, is that right? And then Quayle says, yeah, the best way to explain zombies' bloodlust is this, the appetite of demons expressed through humans. It would be astonishing to people that the richest people in the world, not all of them, but some of them, are into occult ceremonies where they have to drink blood that's extracted from a tortured child. This is the cute, this is the, Quayle goes on to say, they can induce zombieism. The whole subject of zombies could be boiled down at one end to a genetically modified human that is no longer human on the level that you and I are as a living being. Really? And we're getting this from nasal swab tests for COVID? Do you see how, I mean, this is, you take this little kernel of a lie, Donald Trump's lie that he actually won the election, and, or the Republican lie that they've been selling for 40 years, that, you know, we're here for average working people. When they're not. It just explodes into this garden of bizarreness. Anyhow, back with your calls after this. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Today from Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America by Martha S. Jones. In the introduction, Rights of Colored Men Debating Citizenship in Antebellum America is the title of the introduction. The title of William Yeats' 1838 treatise, Rights of Colored Men, aptly captures the subject of this book. The 19th century Americans for whom Yeats wrote were fascinated by a juridical puzzle. Not slaves, nor aliens, nor the equals of free white men, who were former slaves and their descendants before the law. None were more interested in this question than black Americans themselves, and Birthright Citizens takes up their point of view to tell the history of race and rights in the antebellum United States. The pressures brought on by so-called black laws and colonization schemes, especially a radical strain, explain why free people of color feared their forced removal from the United States. In response, they claimed an unassailable belonging, one grounded in birthright citizenship. No legal text expressly provided for such, but their ideas anticipated the terms of the 14th Amendment. Set in Baltimore, a place between North, South, and the Atlantic world, this book traces the scenes and the debates through which black Americans developed ideas about citizenship and claims to the rights that citizens enjoyed. Along the way, they engaged with legislators, judges, and laws, everyday administrators. From the local courthouse to the chambers of high courts, the rights of colored men came to define citizenship for the nation as a whole. Yates authored the very first legal treatise on the rights of free black Americans. It was 1838 when rights of colored men to suffrage, citizenship, and trial by jury was published in Philadelphia. He was not one of antebellum America's highly regarded legal minds. Some say he read law for a time, although there's no evidence that he was admitted to the bar. Instead, Yeats's career began with a short-lived stint as a newspaper publisher in his hometown of Troy, New York. His bona fides on the subject of race and citizenship were best established during his years as an agent for the American Anti-Slavery Society. While many abolitionists maintained a self-conscious distance from free black communities, Yeats centered his work there. The oppression of free people of color was a companion to slavery in Yeats's view with anti-slavery work necessarily extending into questions of free people's status. Penning rights of colored men was the pinnacle of this mission. Yeats placed a powerful instrument of authority in the hands of free African Americans and their allies. The antebellum legal treatise was a key tool in the standardization and dissemination of legal knowledge and was typically devoted to the comprehensive synthesis of a single branch of law. By the late 1830s, Yeats was following on the success of James Kent's commentaries and Joseph Story's treatise series. The genre had come to be associated with the concepts of law as scientific knowledge, legal education as systemic, and the profession as respectable. Yeats successfully adopted legal culture's own tool to such a degree that readers from the 19th century until today have regarded him as an authority on free black legal status. But Yeats's text was also a work of advocacy. Rights of Colored Men received prominent notices in the black and abolitionist press and could be purchased at local anti-slavery society offices. As a result, the work served as a probing legal treatise that fueled activist arguments. Yates provides a window into the position that some activists, black and white, took on race and citizenship in the end of the 1830s. Law was an instrument of change, and Yates Fort rightly explained his objective to undermine prejudice against color. Racism had led to legal disability 
exclusion from militia service, naturalization, suffrage, public schooling, ownership of real property, office holding, and courtroom testimony. Yates was especially unsettled by the disenfranchisement of free black men in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and more recently Pennsylvania. Assembling evidence from legal culture, he believed, would help establish the rights and citizenship of free black people. Yates began with a story of the nation's origin. The establishment of the United States, he said, had been at the outset a revolutionary, republican, and enlightened undertaking that was untainted by racism or distinctions among and between races. This had been possible in the wake of the American Revolution because the founding generation knew firsthand the contributions black people had made to independence through military service and through labor. American law had originally been colorblind, as evidenced by the absence of racial distinctions in founding documents such as the federal and state constitutions. Change came in the early 19th century at the fault line between generations. A forgetting occurred, Yates posited. Lawmakers of the early republic did not know how black people had contributed to the nation's founding and hence were entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens. In this sense, Yeats's aim was partly to restore that past to the nation's political and legal memory. To achieve this, he compiled a history of lawmakers and their deliberations in which he found the development of anti-black prejudice in courts, constitutional conventions, and legislatures. He followed the professional lives of men whose work included roles from low-level administrator to convention delegate and judge. Their ideas about free black people moved with them. Most powerful was Yates's argument about how law, through suffering from amnesia, could be made right. The book, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and uh, continuing the program. Let's pick up your. Oh, by the way, I want my uh, suggestion about the uh, 14th Amendment using, you know, let's let's create a law empowering the 14th Amendment. One of the folks over on Democratic Underground notes, and he's he's right about a lot of this. He says, among Hartman's nuttier ideas, I don't think he's right about that. But he says, he says, where do we get no such law is going to get passed? Well, of course. Right. I'm not saying that we have to have this law. I'm saying that Talking about this law, proposing this law, will force a conversation about Republican sedition and Republican voter suppression. Number two, he says, removing a seat from Georgia does more to disenfranchise that same audience than anything in the legislation Georgia just passed it. Right, but if they're going to continue to disenfranchise voters, shouldn't the state pay a price? And wouldn't that incentivize the state to say, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't do this? And then he says, uh, removing one or more seats from the state means that Georgia needs to draw new lines. Guess who gets to do that? He's saying they could cut out the lost representative, the Democrat. Unlikely, because they cluster Democrats into districts. But yeah, gerrymandering is real. This is not a solution to gerrymandering. And then he says, or she says, hyperbole is sometimes a useful tool, but pretending that the Georgia voting changes raise the level of actually denying people the right to vote is a huge stretch. I agree. And, and that's my point. And in fact, I made that point uh, earlier, I think, in, in uh, you know, one of the posts over there where I said, in either case, it starts the public discussion, which I think is a good thing. So anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls. Larry in Blackfoot, Idaho. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind? Well, I, you were speaking of voting rights, 14th Amendment. I'm wondering, the Electoral College basically has the right to change my vote, don't they? That's correct. Unless a state has passed a law or a rule requiring them to vote. Well, actually, even when the state does, federal law supersedes state law. So, yeah, the Electoral College, the electors can change their minds. It's called faithless electors, and it happens it has happened frequently in our history. It's never flipped an election, but it happens. Oh, so what's okay, your question? Well, I was just wondering. That was it. Okay. Thanks a lot. Good to hear from you. Kate in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Hey, Kate, what's up? Um, hi, Tom. I heard Marjorie Taylor Greene raise $3 million in the first quarter. And That's correct. The impression I got was that's a lot, you know, like, wow. And I'm tired of just believing, taking it for a fact, anything a Republican says. I always just spent the last four years and beyond not hearing any words of truth coming out of a Republican anything. 
So I would like to propose that when the next time some, you know, we make a statement of how much money allegedly raised $3 million. And this, by putting this, allegedly, no, what? What do you think no, about well, yeah, Kate, broadly, I totally agree with your premise that nine times out of 10, when Republicans say something, it's disingenuous, particularly if it has to do with policy. It's either disingenuous or outright lie. This, however, is the result of filings that members of Congress are required to post on a quarterly basis, showing how much money they raised and where they raised it from. And this goes through the Federal Election Commission. These are posts that are, that are you know, vetted by the federal government. So she actually did raise $3.2 million in the first quarter, which is a mind-boggling amount of money. For a normal freshman in their first quarter of their first full year in office, you know, raising a half a million dollars would be a huge deal. So what this demonstrates is the power of stardom, basically. And I'm guessing that, you know, on the left, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is raising money out of proportion to a lot of her colleagues also. You know, the more you can get in the media, the more controversy you can stir up, you know, for good or for bad. Cortez versus Green, for example, good versus bad. You know, the more people are going to hit your website and, and send you 10 bucks. But broadly, I agree with your premise that we need, we need to be fact-checking these well, people. Exactly. If they have to prove it and it proves true, that's one thing. But yeah. I'd well, like they did to in this be case. able to send a message to Republicans that we don't buy every little thing that you say. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I'm, I'm totally with you, Kate. And, and Jen Psaki is doing just an amazing job pushing back on Fox News in, you know, and, and other right wingers in the uh, Daily White House uh, press briefings. It's just amazing. I, I don't know if you've caught them, but it's a sight to behold. Kate, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Kevin in uh, Santa Rosa listening on KNYP. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hi there. I hey. think that you misinterpreted Amendment 14, Section 3. Okay. The last Tell me how. sentence says Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. And I believe the disability is that the person has engaged in insurrection, rebellion, or treason. So, it In would, other words, Congress can pardon take, them? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it would take two-thirds to not remove them. That's the uh, way I interpret it. That makes perfect That's sense. That's a huge difference. That is a huge difference. Kevin, thank you. I'm going to fact check that and yeah, uh, you know, it'll take me an hour or so. And if you're right, and it makes perfect sense what you're saying, again, I, I started this out by saying I don't position myself as a constitutional scholar. I'm a commentator here. But if you are right, then I'm going to tweak my article because that actually strengthens Great. my argument, right? Uh-huh. Yes. I mean, you know, that would mean, hey, you can, sim- you can remove these people with a simple majority vote. If you want to forgive them, it's going to take a two-thirds vote. Right. So you need one, you need 34 in the Senate and 147 in the House. Right. Amazing. Kevin, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I, I tell you, this it's such an honor to hang out with you people. I am sitting in the catbird seat here with some of the smartest people on earth listening to this program and participating and educating and informing me at the same time they are you. It's, it is such an honor and a privilege. We'll continue the program in just a moment. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Speaking the truth, the multinational corporations and the billionaires would really rather you didn't know all about. Charlie in Austin, Texas. Charlie, you are on the air. What's up? Yeah, I'm a little concerned with your uh, 14th Amendment Mm -hmm. idea in that it could hand the majority back to the Republicans in the House. Because, I mean, most of we're talking about mostly Republican-held states where if they have to reduce the number of their delegation, they'll get rid of those pesky Democrats that have been winning elections in their state. So we might end up seeing a significant reduction in, in the Democratic delegation. 
I'm not sure that that would be possible. I mean, uh, you'd have to, you would have to somehow atomize. You'd have to shatter uh, the Atlanta region, for example, which is the core. There's, I think, three major metropolitan areas in, in Georgia that are kind of Democratic strongholds. You would just have to shatter them in the weirdest way, the, the weirdest kind of uh, gerrymandering to make that happen. Although it's not impossible. But still, the influence of the state would be diminished. But my main point, and I thought I made this my rant, Charlie, is that opening up the discussion is my goal. I think that's the important thing, is that we have a public conversation on a law that almost certainly will not pass and we will lose. But, I mean, you know, Republicans have been doing this for, you know, decades now. You know, passing laws to ban all abortions or, you know, regardless of, you know, uh, rape or incest. I mean, just passing absurd laws, knowing that they will not pass, they will not even pass a constitutional test, even just trying to pass them just to get the conversation going. And that's what I'm trying to do here. We've got Republican elected officials who engaged in insurrection or at least gave aid or comfort, which is the language of the 14th Amendment, to people who were engaging in insurrection and perhaps even participated. You've got Laura Boebert. I mean, I still want to know what's the deal. Why is she tweeting out Nancy Pelosi's location in real time during the insurrection? And I've heard crickets on that. And so I think there needs to be some accountability for that and also for these states suppressing the vote. That's my argument. Gotcha, gotcha. gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, th- thanks, thanks a lot. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it up. Kendall in uh, Anza, California. Hey, Kendall, what's on your mind? Oh, thanks again. Read your last days in Prophet's Way when they first came out. Loved them. I love that you included Entheogen's discussion concerning religion and uh, spirituality. Today's discussion, equally vibrant concerning Social Security, Medi-Cal for All. Uh, I found it unsatisfying that, a little disappointing that excuse for not going after the offshoring of manufacturing and now taxation avoidance can only be stopped in the future, what can we do concerning all those major corporations that have already offshored both for tax yeah. avoidance and jobs? Here, here's the problem, that, Kendall. Some kind the, of the Constitution forbids ex post facto laws, which is laws that reach back into the past and criminalize things that happened in the past. So you can't claw back that money right now. All you can do is stop the flow of it. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a problem. I mean, it's not a problem. I, I, don't, I don't think any of us would want to suddenly discover that Congress passed a law making something that we did yesterday criminal. And that's why. But that's why we can't do it, Kendall, is because of the constitutional prohibition on ex post facto, you know, on, on laws that reach into the past. You can't do that. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, now also available as an e-book. DemocracyAtWork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf, as in Professor Wolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. And uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back. There's a fascinating piece on Axios the other day, and I, I believe Sean shared it with you this morning, that there's like these two competing narratives about growth. One is that, you know, growth is a great thing because it increases prosperity and it increases the probability that you'll have new technologies that will be less carbon, you know, dependent and over time growth will actually lead to a cleaner world. And then there's the other argument that, no, no, you've got to stop growth because growth is causing pollution and causing social problems and it's making us, you know, impinge on native areas that uh, are, you know, virgin forest and jungle and things which bring diseases into human society. And, and there's other arguments, economic arguments as well. And, and I'm curious your thoughts on growth versus degrowth and these two, these two movements. Well, for me, the problem is putting this in that either or frame. It's really not, for me, a question of growth versus degrowth but a question of what the objectives of an economic system are. 
that's the problem. We don't really have neither a public discussion about that nor any chance for a democratic decision by all the people, one person, one vote, as what we want our economy to do for us. But let me get to the core economics of it. The way the capitalist economic system that we have works is it has an ultimate goal. It's called profit. Profit is the bottom line. Profit is what a manager of a corporation is judged on. If the profit goes up, well, then you get rewarded. And if the profit goes down, you get punished. Ultimately, if profit goes down long enough, you go into bankruptcy and the entire enterprise ends. Once you have an economic system that works like that, it follows very strictly logically that you have to expand because your competitors are expanding And if you don't do the same, they will have an advantage. Being bigger, their profit will be greater. They will be able to innovate with new machines. You, because your profit isn't so big, won't be able to do that, etc., etc. Every business school in this country teaches its students that when you go out there, sure, you can have social concerns and you can be a good churchgoer and all the rest, but profit is the name of the game, and that's what you do. Once you have a system set up like that, growth is built in. Capitalism has been good at growing because it has to, because that's its organization. What we now have is a slowly developing recognition that that growth is good and necessary for capitalism, but not at all good and necessary for those of us who live in this system. And the clearest example is the climate issue, the ecological damage that this growth has done. But I would add other considerations. Having a fruitful job for everybody, that ought to be part of what an economy does. Having a decent income and not having extremes of wealth and inequality, that's also a better way to organize a society. And I could go on giving opportunity to people who have been denied it, making sure that education is a lifelong opportunity for people uh, as part of the job, making sure child care is available so that people who have jobs do not have to worry that they're shortchanging their children. On and on and on. If we had a society that took these considerations into its consciousness and made their decisions that way, we wouldn't be having a conversation either growth or no growth. We would have growth as one objective among many, but we would be making decisions about all of them. And in many cases, we would shorten the amount of growth in order to make more quality or the climate or all the other issues that a complex society cares about. It sounds like you're describing the social democracies of Scandinavia and Northern Europe, you know, where capitalism is heavily regulated and the society is is the first priority as opposed to profit, uh, or at least a very high priority. Do I have that right? Absolutely. They've taken steps in that direction. By the way, they still allow private capitalism. They still allow the profit motive to be the guiding bottom line driver of what happens. But you're right. They have developed the political organization and the consciousness to say that kind of system has to be hedged about with all kinds of limits, rules, regulations, uh, a big role for the government that is subject to democratic influences from the people and so on. They have taken steps in that direction that the United States, the United Kingdom and other countries have not yet figured out that they need to do as well. Yeah. So Joe Biden is proposing to raise the corporate income tax from 21% to 28%. It was at 50% from the 1940s until the 1980s, the period of greatest wage growth in the history of the United States and the period of, of greatest business expansion in our country. I was making the argument that that corporate tax rate, in order to avoid paying income taxes on profits, corporate income taxes on profits, companies would depress their profits by investing in the company and paying their employees well. And 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 he was making the argument that uh, that's not the case, I suppose. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on that. 
Well, I think the basic issue is you're quite right, Tom. Uh, there's no question that higher corporate taxes were associated in the post-World War II period with much faster rates of growth, that the corporate sector pushed heavily for taxes to be lowered in the name of job creation and economic growth, and the reality, the empirical reality is when they got their tax cuts, they did not invest them in economic growth. There were, of course, many reasons for them. They mostly invested them in raising uh, corporate pay packages and paying off their uh, stockholders with dividends and all the rest. But here's the bottom line. If you cut taxes on corporations, you're leaving them with the money to decide how to use it. Sometimes they will use it in the ways you hope. Other times, they will use it in the ways you decry. The recent period, they've used it in the way they want, which is to beef up their mergers, to beef up their dividends, and all the rest. In a capitalist system, private enterprise has the final say. And all the government does with raising and lowering taxes is try to influence it without being able to make sure that what we want as a society is what these corporations do. And if I could say a word about uh, President Biden, he's proposing a 28%, as you rightly say. But the uh, agreement in Washington is quite clear that he won't get that. He'll get something less than that, depending on the usual Republican-Democratic bargaining. So we'll end up having come back less than halfway to the enormous tax cut given by Trump in December of 2017. And that tax cut, let's remember, an enormous gift to corporations and the rich came at the end of a 40-year period of redistributing wealth upwards. Uh, I'm disappointed, and I think it needs to be said. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> Professor Richard Wolf, democracyatwork.info. You can tweet him at Prof. Wolf. Uh, Professor Wolf, thank you. Thank you as well, Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We will be right back. More of the news of the day and your calls after this. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and my cat. Ketty has come. Uh, we named Ketty after the uh, movie. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was in the art theaters for a while. We saw it in Washington, D.C. about a cat, a bunch of cats in uh, Turkey, in, uh, as I recall, Istanbul. And K-E-D-I was the... Uh, so anyhow, Ketty just jumped up on my desk here and so you may hear from him. You know, apologies in advance. Uh, one point I wanted to make about the Chauvin trial this morning, because Debbie's not going to be able to join us today with an update, is that this physician, this pulmonary expert, this you know lung and breathing expert, just laid out a devastating case about what happened to George Floyd uh, when Derek Chauvin put his knee on his neck and how it constricted his airways. And that produced a predictable rise in carbon dioxide. And they actually measured the exact level of carbon dioxide in his blood when he got to the hospital that this physician predicted would have happened from, you know, having a cop put his knee on your neck for nine minutes. And it was just, it just gutted the defense. You know, it was just astonishing. So, you know, we'll see where the trial goes from here. But uh, if you uh, if you have a chance to, to catch that, 
online or you know wherever you can see it it's really worth the effort richard in tahlequah oklahoma richard it says here you disagree with me what's up uh can you uh ask me about five questions one at a time and let me show you how prejudice or liars what you are okay one at a time. uh you are five. okay you want to ask me questions what he does the republican then, you know, you blame all the Republicans for every damn thing just because you don't like one man for one damn thing. Well, that's not true. One question at a time. What don't you like about what Trump done or did? You, well, I don't I'll like Trump promoting race. Two-faced and you're a liar. Okay? Okay. You, uh, you, do you want me to answer your question, Richard, or do you just want to call me names? Yeah. One time. Go ahead. One question. Okay. <laughs> All right. What I don't like about Donald Trump is that he's a racist. I don't like the fact that he rapes women. I think he's a lousy example for our children. I don't like the fact that he's a fascist, that he encourages cops to beat people up. I don't like the fact. One at a time. No, Richard, I'm sorry. I'm not going to play the game with your rules. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Well, it's the day or the week of the flip, apparently. Uh, Weisselberg's, uh, you know, the CFO, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization for years, I mean, for back from before Donald was running it, back when, when his dad Fred was running it, this guy was with the family. His daughter-in-law, she has given seven boxes of documents to investigators in the Manhattan DA office and the New York State Attorney's General's office, and she says she has several more in her possession, and she has hired a high-powered lawyer. So that's happening. And at least according to some media reports, the guy that was procuring 17-year-olds for Matt Gates, you know, this is this uh, Joel Greenberg guy, this weird tax collector down in Florida, he has been offered a lighter sentence in exchange for evidence that would incriminate Gates, or at least to suggest that. There was a hearing in Orlando that suggests that he's going to be plea bargaining. And if he is, that may be very bad news for Congressman Gates. So, you know, there's that. I'm kind of John Don about all of this. You know, any man's death diminishes me. I, I just, you know, it's a tragedy that people get into these things, that people following Trump you know, I, as I said to the caller who, who was like, oh, you, you know, you liberals, you're all, you just hate Trump. And I'm like, uh, no, I mean, you know, he, he promoted some very bad standards for America. You know, raping women and advocating fascism, telling police to rough people up, saying that his followers who engage in violence, he'll pay for their legal bills. Crowing about the execution, essentially, by police of the fellow here in Portland who, who shot the Proud Boy. All of these things, I mean, it's just, it all adds up to just a, an American tragedy in many ways. There was an interesting piece over, uh, it was a, I saw the post on DU first and it sent me to the, to the blog post by, by a commentator. He was talking about a lot of normal people, people who actually can feel empathy are experiencing like fatigue from dealing with sociopaths, from dealing with a sociopathic president, Donald Trump, from dealing with Trump's sociopathic buddies, like the leaders of Saudi Arabia and, and, and Russia and China and a few other countries, um, and, and dealing with sociopaths in our Congress and dealing with sociopaths in our streets. You know, the bullies, the gun nuts, the, it's just like, there's just like this general psychic malaise, this deep wounding to the psyche of America that has happened as a consequence of the Trump presidency. And then, of course, we got locked down in the last year of it, and we're now just beginning to emerge from that. And, and yet even that is filled with danger because of the way that Trump handled the pandemic and, and his followers and his, and, and not just Trump. I mean, you had, you know, Christy Noem in South Dakota, the governor up there inviting, you know, a half million bikers to her state that, that accounted for hundreds of thousands of cases of COVID around the country and thousands of deaths, presumably. You had Greg Abbott doing the same thing down in Texas, not inviting bikers, but basically saying, you know, be happy. Uh, you don't need no stinking masks. You have uh, the governor, uh, Ron DeSantis down in Florida, same deal and apparently covering up uh, COVID deaths in that state. 
it certainly looks like it in any case. And I think that, that Americans are just like fried. We're cooked. We're done. Um, so, I don't know. I just tossed that on the table for your consideration. I don't have a therefore. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us by Rachel Louise Snyder. I'm reading from the preface. This is page four. Suzanne and I exchanged small talk on her brother's driveway that day in 2010. She and the family were still in preparation and packing mode for their annual camping vacation into the hinterlands of Maine. And Suzanne had been greeted by her brother Andre with a long shopping list. She told me she worked for a domestic violence agency in town and that they had recently developed a new program that she was calling the Domestic Violence High Risk Team. Their primary aim was simple, she said. We try to predict domestic violence homicides before they happen so we can prevent them. It sounded immediately implausible. So implausible, in fact, that I thought I'd misheard some elemental piece of it. Predict, I remember saying? You said predict domestic violence homicides? I had come across domestic violence in my reporting over the years, not only in Cambodia, but also in places like Afghanistan, Niger, and Honduras. But it had never been a focus for me. Instead, it was always adjacent to whatever other story I was writing, so much so that it was practically banal. The young girls jailed for love crimes in Kabul, the Indian child brides who gave interviews only in front of the men who controlled them, the Tibetan women forcibly sterilized by the Chinese government, the teenage brides in Niger cast from their villages after post-pregnancy fistulas made them pariahs, the Romanian women forced to birth multiple children under Ceausescu and who now in their early 30s were grandmothers fated to poverty, the Cambodian street workers beaten and gang-raped for weekend sport by well-heeled Khmer teenagers. All of these women in every country were brutalized and controlled by men as a matter of routine. Men made the rules, primarily through physical violence. It was there lurking in practically every story I'd ever covered around the world, a shadowy background so obvious I didn't even have to ask about it most of the time. It was as common as rain. Until that moment in the driveway with Suzanne Dubas, if I thought of domestic violence in the United States at all, I saw it as an unfortunate fate for the unlucky few, a matter of bad choices and cruel environments. A woman hardwired to be hurt. But I never envisioned it as a social ill, an epidemic we can actually do something about. Now here was Susan Dubas talking about preventative measures for a type of violence that, for the first time, I saw operating along a continuum. The young girl in India married as a child, the Tibetan woman sterilized, the Afghan woman jailed, the housewife in Massachusetts brutalized by her husband. They all shared a common privation, what domestic violence victims across the world lacked, agency in their own lives. The forces that brought a Cambodian prostitute to the brink of death were the same forces that killed thousands of women and children and men, but mostly women and children, across America and the entire globe every year. An average, in fact, of 137 women each and every day are killed by intimate partner or familial violence across the globe. And this does not include men or children. Everything in my body suddenly came alive that day. I saw all the faces of women around the world from over two decades of work, and I realized how rarely I'd gazed inward at my own country, at what we got wrong and what it meant. The universality of domestic violence and how it crisscrosses geographical, cultural, and linguistic barriers. Maybe all those other stories were in preparation for the day that I'd meet Paul Monson and look at the mountains from his living room windows. I ended up following Suzanne to the farmer's market and then to the grocery store and then to the liquor store as she prepped for her camping trip. I helped her carry ice and peaches and hamburger meat. I asked question after question while she drove and while her mother Pat sat in the passenger seat chiming in here and there. How did it work? How many have you stopped? What else can you predict? My questions were vast and endless. Like many people who hold a casual acquaintance with a problem, I believed all the common assumptions. That if things were bad enough, victims would just leave. That restraining orders solved the problem. And that if a victim didn't show up to renew a restraining order, the problem had been solved. That going to a shelter was an adequate response for victims and their children. That violence inside the home was something private, unrelated to other forms of violence perhaps most notably mass shootings, that a lack of visible injury signaled a lack of seriousness, and perhaps most of all, that unless we stand at the receiving end of a punch, such violence had nothing to do with us at all. 
Over the next few years, Suzanne Dubas and her colleague Kelly Dunn patiently taught me about the scope and history of an issue that still today is too often hidden. I learned why past approaches had failed and what we could do more effectively today. Between 2000 and 2006, 3,200 American soldiers were killed. During that same period, domestic homicide in the United States claimed 10,600 lives. This figure is likely an underestimate as it was pulled from the FBI's supplementary homicide reports, which gathered data from local police departments and participation is voluntary. 20 people in the United States are assaulted every minute by their partners. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called violence against women and girls the most shameful human rights violation. And the World Health Organization called it a global health problem of epidemic proportions. A study put out by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime cited 50,000 women around the world were killed by partners or family members in 2017 alone. 50,000 women. The UNODC report called home the most dangerous place for women. The book No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Gerilyn Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Sprost, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, and Jay LeBlanc. All the folks who help make this show work for you. And thank you for helping, you know, helping keep us going. Be good to yourself and those around you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.